Hello everyone, this is Pastor Jay Tyler from Holt Assembly of God, and I want to thank you for listening to this broadcast of Life in the Spirit. I pray that you are challenged, blessed, and encouraged as you hear God's Word shared in this message. I want to share these motherly insights. Uh, mothers of, teenage do- of teenagers understand why some animals eat their young. It's spicy is the universal mom code for I don't want to share. A daughter asked, Mom, what's it like to have the greatest daughter in the world? Mom says this, I don't know, ask your grandmother. One mom said this, some days I do yoga and I don't yell at my kids. Some days I scream at them while eating cake over the kitchen sink. It's called balance. I love it when I find myself screaming, stop screaming at my kids. That's how I teach them irony. A police recruit was asked during the exam, during the exam what would you do if you had to arrest your own mother? He answered, call for backup. Silence is golden unless you have kids. Then silence is suspicious. So the Bible is full of great motherhood examples. And uh, I, I, I had a bunch of them I was going to list at the beginning, but just for time's sake, I just narrowed it down to a couple. But for example, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Can you imagine, first of all, bringing the Son of God into this world, and then secondly, being charged with this task of raising the Son of God, God in the flesh. Can you imagine that? Then I thought about Eunice, and you say, well, who's, who's Eunice? Well, Eunice was the mother of Timothy. And Paul credits both Eunice and his grandmother Lois for being Timothy's faith examples. So the Bible is full of these examples, and there's just so many great examples of motherhood that we could really focus on, but today we're going to focus on the story of Hannah. And Hannah, as we know, is the the mother of Samuel. And Samuel served Israel as a judge. He fulfilled the role of judge, priest, and prophet, a threefold ministry. In fact, his life is a precursor to the life of Christ. He is what we call a type of Christ. His life, his ministry, is something that foreshadows or foretells of the ministry of Jesus. So when you see the ministry of Samuel, you see a foreshadowing of the ministry of the Messiah. So let's start by looking at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we're going to start with verse 1. It says, There was a man from uh, Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. He had two wives, one called Hannah, and the other, Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Now, while polygamy wasn't uncommon during this time period, it wasn't so common for the Jewish people at this time. They've embraced the law, and now monogamy was the norm. However, there were certain conditions and circumstances that polygamy was allowed, and this is one. So Hannah also appears to be uh, Elkanah's first wife. She's listed first in the order, and there's some other instances that make us believe that she was the first wife. Peninnah was the second wife because, again, Hannah was barren. So Peninnah, uh, Elkanah married her in order to produce children, to bear children. So let's go down to verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice uh, to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. There Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. 
but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. When you find barrenness throughout the Word of God, and barrenness is a theme we'll find woven throughout the, the, the Bible story, often barrenness is also associated with something spiritual. So we'll see that women are barren during periods in, throughout the Bible, and it's because it's a, a physical manifestation of the spiritual reality, which is this, there's a spiritual barrenness that is taking place. And to put it really into to better context is to understand when this is taking place. You know, we don't think of Samuel as a judge because his life is after judges. It seems like, but it's not. Actually, Samuel is a judge or becomes a judge. He lives during the period of the judges. So if you know anything about the period of judges, you know this it was a time of spiritual barrenness. So during this period of the judges, this is what takes place, and if you're not familiar with it, uh, Israel would serve God. They would be passionate about their service to God, but slowly just, just began to drift away from God. They would backslide, and they would turn away from God, and they would begin to embrace the culture and the gods who lived near them. As a result, God would allow is the Israelites to become oppressed by those very nations. So while under the oppression of these nations, Israel would cry out to God in repentance. Of course, God would respond in love and mercy and grace, and he would raise up a judge, a deliverer, a type of Messiah who would deliver Israel from its enemies and also restore their spiritual growth or their path back towards God. So as long as the judge lived, Israel would remain faithful to God. But as soon as the judge died, what would take place is begin, Israel would begin to backslide once again slip further back into sin. That process repeated itself at least 12 times over a period of 300 years. Just a cycle of sin. The verse that best summarizes this spiritual condition of Israel during this time in which uh, Hannah was barren is Judges 21-25. It is the verse that really gives you an understanding of what was taking place in Israel during those days. It's Judges 21-25. In those days, in those days, there was no God in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Our nation embraces that same point of view today. And you say, well, that doesn't seem so bad. At least they're doing right. No, it's doing what's right in their eyes. As opposed to doing what's right in God's eyes, in the sight of God. So instead of embracing moral and spiritual absolutes, what we do is we serve a God of own, our own creation, of our own ideology. So the Bible says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So whenever we live by what we think is right, rather than what's right in God's sight, this is what takes place. It's a very, very slippery slope, and it ends at a bottomless pit. Hannah was barren and would have been considered herself, she would have considered herself as inadequate because she was barren. You say, well, that sounds kind of like a, a tough label to put on her. And the reason why she would have felt inadequate as a wife, because she was unable to bear children. You know, back then, bearing children, specifically male children, as we understand throughout the Word of God, would have been considered her greatest honor, her greatest duty, uh, her greatest achievement. How can I give my, my husband more honor, respect? How can I have more honor and respect as, as having children, having a male child? So Hannah, being unable to fulfill this promise, surely would have felt inadequate. And each of us will face the same lie that Hannah faced, and that is one of inadequacy. There's always 
periods in our lives, times that we'll run into situations that we just feel inadequate. Anyone else been there before? The word inadequate is defined as lacking the quality or quantity required, insufficient for a purpose. Now, if you're like me, I could read that definition. It makes sense, but I just don't get it. So what I have to do is like in many words. What, what are some words that are associated with being inadequate? Check this out. Insufficient, deficient, incomplete, limited, pathetic, incapable, not good enough, lacking, leaving much to be desired, ineffective, unskillful, inept, useless, inferior, impotent, powerless, not up to stuff, lousy. Anybody ever, ever identify with those terms before, those titles? And the answer is sure you have. Each and every one of us have. Each and every one of us have felt at our time that we can identify with those terms. Every one of us has believed or come to believe or felt or thought we were deficient, limited, pathetic, not good enough, not up to snuff, useless, inferior, impotent. The list goes on and on. We've all faced this lie at some point in our times, but here's the question. Are you still embracing that lie? Because the truth is this, that of course none of us are inadequate in Christ Jesus. None of us. We have something that God has placed in us, his plans, his purposes. He has that, that, that DNA in us. He's, and so embracing a lie will keep us from experiencing God's plan and purpose for our lives. Listen what the Bible says to you about, about yourself in Christ. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things, all things through Christ who what? Gives me strength. He strengthens me. Apply that verse to your life. It's, it's part of God's promise. It's part of his plan. If you ever do this, if you don't apply that to your life, if you walk opposite of that or, or not in light of that truth, what becomes is this, is that you do feel inadequate. You'll run into failure. You'll run into situations where you can't fulfill what you feel like you're supposed to do and you feel inadequate. It's a natural human reaction. But you know this, that you could get stuck in that natural human reaction and that's not God's plan for your life. What God says about us, who we are in Christ, should determine how we think and then how we begin to live our lives. It should direct our steps. If you feel inadequate for any reason, remember this. It's a lie. It's a lie. God created you to fulfill a glorifying purpose. Do you know what keeps you the most back or what keeps you from fulfilling God's purpose for your life? And the answer is this, you. You. It's not the enemy. It's not the world. What keeps you from fulfilling God's plan and purpose for your life is you. You're your biggest obstacle. Now, knowing that is helpful. And I know we live in a time where we like to blame everyone else, everything else, but we're our own problem. We're our own biggest problem. The good news is that that can be taken care of. We just let God do it. Proverbs 23, 7 says this, For as he thinks in his heart, so he is. If you feel inadequate, you think you're inadequate, guess what you're going to be? See, but if you have to answer this question, who you are in Christ, again, you may feel inadequate, that's fine, but you have to combat that with truth and what God's Word says. Because if you don't change your thinking, it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So as a man thinks, so he is. The fact that Elkanah married another woman would have made Hannah feel more inadequate. And we know that this, there's, there's good reason for it in that time and that culture. Now, in our time and culture, we can't think of any good reason for that. But it was acceptable. There was reasons. There was purpose for it. And that's a whole different message. But just doing that would have made her feel more inadequate. 
I'm sure Hannah thought this, what, what am I good for? I, I can't have children. What value do I have? How can I be a good wife if I can't bear children? I'm sure she just, the inadequacy that would, that go, through her, would go through her mind was, was tormenting her. So on top of all this, what she's enduring from her self-affliction, this takes place. Look at verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. So Peninnah is her rival. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? I don't know if Elkanah knew that Hannah was being tormented by Peninnah. The, the text leads us to believe that he doesn't, that he doesn't understand. He understands that, that she's a broken woman, and he, he understands that some degree of her suffering is because of how she feels and how she thinks. And he's trying to reassure her, listen, am I not worth more to you than ten sons? And what he's doing is he's turning the value over. One son to him would be incredible value, but Hannah, you're worth more than ten sons. He's showing her his love for her. But he doesn't understand the depth of her torment. He doesn't understand that the other lady, his other wife, is provoking her. He doesn't understand that she is tormenting her. So El Elkanah saw Hannah's brokenness, but I don't think he understood the degree of her suffering. And Elkanah loves Hannah. You can see, you can see his reassurance in his words. He's, he's telling her that she's, again, worth more than ten sons. And I don't think it's lip service. I think it's a genuine love that's being displayed through this man. So Elkanah loved Hannah, but he hated to see her suffer. And what we believe is what he would believe is, again, self-imposed shame. Peninnah torments Hannah kicks her while she's down. You ever been kicked while you're down? It's never pleasant, is it? Especially if you feel inadequate in the world or someone or something just begins to kick you while you're down. It's a terrible feeling. And Panetta, I'm sure she's hoping this, I want to push her over the edge. If she goes and kills herself, I really don't care. And I'm thinking there's some jealousy. Obviously, it's a rival. So she wants Elkanah for herself. If, if, is, or if Hannah's not there, it's okay with her. Kick her while she's down. But Hannah's no pushover. Hannah's no pushover. Hannah in her weakness remains a woman of great faith. And out of her suffering, she responds to God in faith. Look at this in verse 9. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, do her, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. The house of the Lord at this time is not the temple. The house of the Lord is the tabernacle that Moses built. So the tabernacle wasn't set up in Jerusalem at this time. It was set up in Shiloh. And so once a year, they would travel to Shiloh to go and worship the Lord at a feast. That doesn't mean that's the only time they went to church or they gathered together, but they would come only to Shiloh at certain times of the year. It was a distance. It was a travel uh, situation. But we don't know how many times this takes place, how many times Hannah goes to this feast 
and begins to celebrate and worship God. And out of her brokenness, we don't know how many times she pleads with God for a son, begging him for a child. We don't know how many times that she went home and tried to have a child and failed. How many times did this pattern take place? We don't know. But on this occasion, Hannah does something a little different. She makes a vow. God, give me a son, and I'll give him to you. Now, there again, there are spiritual parallels between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And if you don't see the parallels between God, the Father, and his son, then I think you, it's interesting to, to study this one because we see that exact parallel taking place. See, God gave his only son, right? Hannah is willing to give her son to God. It's kind of a reverse thing, but it's the same situation. God, in turn, offers his son as a sacrifice. Hannah is sacrificially offering her son to God. So Hannah vows to give her son as a Nazarite. Just real quickly, a Nazarite doesn't mean they are a person from Nazareth. Uh, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Okay? Uh, Samson was a Nazarite. Paul, you can make a vow, a Nazarite vow. Paul made a Nazarite vow in the book of Acts. He took a special oath of dedication unto God. So as Hannah prayed at the tabernacle in her deep anguish, Eli, the high priest, makes this observation as she's praying just in her anguish. Check this out. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but the, her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Verse 16, do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the Lord God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Now there's a reason for this. She, she's sad and she's in anguish, and all of a Something flipped, but we don't understand what just happened here, I don't think. What made her flip? There's, there's a reason why. Because Eli is the spiritual leader of Israel. He is the priest. All right? He is the high priest. So what we look at in Eli is this, that he has very little spiritual perception. Now, we think that the high priest should be a man that's above reproach. He's a man that is perfect or whatever, but Eli didn't fit this bill. In fact, Eli was kind of the opposite of this. He had very little spiritual perception. He thinks Hannah is a woman who's drunk. He mistakes a woman who is in anguish and is deeply committed to God, pouring out her soul to God. He thinks that this woman is drunk. He has no spiritual perception. Now, can you imagine this? If, if Hannah was a pushover, if she wasn't such a wonderful woman of faith, she could have, again, all those negative thoughts and all that just inadequacy and just could have really piled in on her more. I mean, even the priest doesn't understand me. He thinks I'm drunk. He doesn't even look at my, you know, something wrong with me. Am I defective that he would think that I'm drunk rather than a woman who is in anguish? These statements could have discouraged Hannah, but Hannah's not discouraged by his lack of perception. Instead, Hannah uses this as an opportunity to make her plead to God. Again, the high priest served as the intermediary between God and man. His question, his blunder, opens up a great door for her. A great opportunity. See, the, the Hebrew people would go to the high priest to know the will of God, first of all, 
Secondly, the high priest would make a sin offering for the people. And then also, if you needed to intercede on the behalf of your people, the high priest is a type of Christ. So he is interceding on the behalf. Where is Jesus now? At the right hand of God. What does he do? He makes intercession for the saints. The same thing's taking place. Eli's blundered opens. That's why her character, that's why her, her reaction changes. She goes from sad to glad. He asked me, hey, you're drunk. No, I could tell him. And then he blesses my request. So again, under the New Testament, this is Jesus as our high priest. Hebrews 9.11, but when Christ came as high priest of good things that, that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, it is not part of this creation. And then 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, that man, Christ Jesus. So Jesus is our high priest. He's offered himself, his blood, his sacrifice. He's made atonement for our sins. We have access to God, his throne, through the blood of Jesus. We don't have to come through a man like Hannah did. Hannah had to come through a man. So Hannah doesn't get unnerved by Eli's lack of spiritual awareness, but she uses this conversation to open the door to God. See, that's why all these other times it has failed, but she's made this vow to God. And she has this opportunity to speak to the high priest. Obviously, he doesn't know her despair, or he would have recognized him. Oh, that's right, you're barren. He, he's totally clueless. He doesn't know. She comes every year to the tabernacle, but he doesn't understand it. But he blesses her request. When Eli realizes Hannah's heartfelt prayer, he blesses her. So when it comes to faith, we'll all encounter obstacles. In fact, if you don't face some obstacles, I don't know that you really need faith. Faith require, Obstacles require faith. Hannah faced many obstacles that could have derailed her faith if she allowed. When she, or people in situations will come in as deterrence. They try to damage our faith journey, but we have to make this decision to remain committed. Committed to whatever God places in your heart. Whatever promise God brings up from Scripture, puts in your heart, that's what we have to say. There's going to be all types of obstacles and deterrents that will fight against that. But you have to determine in your heart what God has spoke to you and then stand on that promise and not give up. Like Canada, there's obstacles. And those obstacles, man, they can hurt your heart. They can hurt and they can defeat your faith. They can weaken your faith if you allow them. Again, Faith isn't something that's convenient. Faith requires us to remain committed and to trust God no matter what the circumstances are. Hannah does this and gives us a powerful example. In Hannah's situation, again, she's been barren for years. Year after year, she goes to Shiloh. Her and her husband make sacrifices. They pray for a child. Year after year, she feels disappointment. Year after year, she feels rejection. Year after year, she feels inadequacy. I'm sure there were times in her flesh where she's like, you know what, maybe I should just be grateful. Grateful that I have a husband who loves me. Grateful that I have life. But Hannah took that holy displeasure within her. No, I can't settle for that. And church, when you have that holy displeasure within you, you should listen to that. Because God has placed that in there for a reason. Listen, complacency is our enemy. And the hu and human race is prone to complacency. It's prone to procrastination. Hannah presses on in her faith despite these obstacles, even her own obstacles, her own self-imposed obstacles. She has every reason, opportunity to give up, to give in. But she remains steadfast to the promise God's placed in her heart, a son. Here's the results of Hannah's faith. 
in verse 20. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. What an incredible just testament of her faith. God provides a son, but not so fast. The faith battle hasn't begun. See, we think the faith battle was back here. It's not. The faith battle has really just begun. See, the real test of faith is now the vow that she made. There's a reason why God answered that prayer, because she made a vow. Now, I'm not going to say that you should go out and make vows. Just be careful, right? But when there's a vow that's a committed faith vow, you have to respect it. God responds to Hannah's faith because she makes this vow at Shiloh. It moved the heart of God. See, it moved the heart of God because he knows what he's going to do, that he's going to give his son one day. And when he says that, when he hears the prayer that Hannah says, God, I'm willing to give you my son, he's yours, it moves the heart of God. It moves his heart to action. So Hannah's real faith test would be her obedience to her vow of faith. So verse 21, when her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now Hannah, again, was given a son by God, and his name even bears that gift. But think about once he's weaned, what does that mean? You can say, well, I could wean a child for a long time. But in that culture and time, that meant 22 to 24 months. Now, some of you ladies already understand that dynamic of nursing that child for 22 to 24 months. You barely have a toddler, and now you've got to give him up. This, this child that you wanted all your life, for years, probably de- for at least a decade, I would, I would imagine. And God blessed you with this wonderful child, and now you're going to have to give him away because you made some stupid prayer to God. What seemed great one day will seem stupid the next, right? Verse 24, after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked him. So now I will give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given to over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. I don't know how many of you ladies could do that. I don't know how many of you could do that. And what impresses us is this, is what an incredible faith this woman has. I'm I'm sure she could have justified her position. See, Uh, what was known about Eli was common, and this is what was commonly known about Eli. He wasn't such a good father. He may have been the high priest, but his sons were priests, and if you remember the story, his sons were thieves. They would steal the offerings that were brought to the house of God. Secondly, they would sleep with the women who ministered at the tabernacle. What Eli should have done was remove his sons, but he didn't. He just rebukes them, says don't do that, but leaves them in that position. What do they do? They continue in their behavior, 
He's not a good parent. He's not a good father. He's not a good spiritual leader. Why would I leave my son, whom God has given me, over to this man? As a parent, I would have tried to renegotiate my vow with God. Hey, God, uh, but here's the problem with that. She knew what kind of man he was prior to her vow. She knew what kind of man he was. See, we could have tried to renegotiate that and said, God, you know what kind of man he is. I, I can't leave my son with this man. But Hannah knows who Eli was. That, what does that show you? It doesn't show recklessness. It shows you even greater faith. It shows you her heart that she just, her desire and whatever God put in her was to have a son. And that if I have to give that son away to God, I'm willing to do it. Whatever the circumstance, I'm just going to trust him. Hannah making this vow knows Eli, who Eli was. And not only does she make a vow, but she makes a vow to dedicate him as a Nazareth. A Nazarite, which, which is one of the most dedicated vows to give to God. And here's the key. Before Samuel was born, he already belonged to God because she'd already given him to God. So she can't take what's God's. Church, we do that awful lot. If we would just respect and obey God's word and not take what's his, man, God could bless us in so many ways. But I'm wondering how many times that Aunt Hannah, as she dropped his, this child off and was making herself, or made, made herself ready to take this child to drop him off, how many times did she want to say, you know what, man, I just can't do this. I can't, I can't give my son away. Two years, this had to be brewing in her. And when that two years takes place, and that day comes where she has to take her son to God, I'm sure it was a heart-wrenching day. Despite her feelings, Hannah kept her word, and this is how she stays in contact with Samuel and with her dedication to God. Verse 18, Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child, wearing an, an, a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year. When she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own house. What was that journey like for Hannah every year? The, the, the excitement to see her son? Sure. But can you imagine the trip back home? The trip going back home, I, I get to see my son, but I got to leave my son. Every year. How many times did she cry out, God, I've I, I made a mistake. God, I, I can't do this. I've got to take him back home. The courage and commitment she demonstrates, I think, is one of the most under, under, you know, um, unrecognized faith models or examples that we find in Scripture. You don't hear a lot of people talking about the faith of Hannah, but she demonstrates some of the most incredible faith throughout the Word of God. She's an amazing woman of faith who trusts God with all of her heart. Despite the obstacles, the variable, she remains faithful to God in her promise. As a result of her commitment, God blesses her and Elkanah. Check this out, verse 21. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. She, has not, she goes from zero to six. Zero to six if you count Samuel. I said earlier, Samuel is a type of Christ. His life foreshadows and reveals the life of Jesus, years before Jesus came in the flesh. And in the New Testament, Mary and Joseph had at least five children, maybe six. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He has no earthly father. Some believe that he had six siblings, some say five. It just depends on how you read the scriptures. But really, all of them are half-siblings because Jesus' father was God. His mother was Mary. 
Elkanah is the first of six children belonging to Hannah and Elkanah, but the opposite is this, that Hannah gives her first son to God. God gives his first son to man. Both Mary and Hannah, I don't know if you noticed this, that after Mary has uh, Jesus, she sings a song. It's called Mary's Song, right? It's in Luke chapter 1. I'm, just, I'm not going to read all of it. It's fairly long. It's almost the whole chapter, uh, the whole bottom half of the chapter. And Mary said, my soul, remember, my soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has arranged this lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. And again, her song goes on for many, many verses. Hannah has the same situation. Check this out. I'm just going to read one verse. And Hannah prayed this, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. When you read the two songs, they're called the Song of Mary and the Song of Hannah. They're eerily similar. Samuel would grow up, become Israel's, one of Israel's finest leaders. In essence, he becomes a judge, but in really, he's a king. But Jesus is our king. He is our king of kings. Amen? Samuel also became the high priest. But Jesus is our high priest. And he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And he's now seated at the right hand of God. He makes intercession for us because he is our high priest. Samuel served as prophet. He was the prophetic voice of the nation. Not only that, he anointed Israel's first two kings, Saul and David. He was the prophetic voice of the nation. But here's the deal. Jesus is our prophet. He is the living word of God. He's the living word of God. Imagine the Bible without Samuel. Imagine the Bible without Samuel and the impact, the, the ripple effect that he has throughout the word of God. Imagine him being taken out of the, the scriptures. See, if Hannah doesn't display her faith, there is no Samuel. This woman's faith plays a huge factor in the history of God's people. Hannah's faith to believe God for a son and to dedicate him to God is a major story in the, in the story of redemption. Don't ever think as a mom, as a wife, a child, a husband, a father, that you are inadequate. Don't ever feel like you are inadequate. Don't ever think that whatever God has trusted you with is insignificant. Because, look, we can look at this story very simply. All she wants is a child. All she wants is a son. And if she can have a son, then she can fulfill God's plan for her life. I don't know about you, that's a very simple goal. A very simple goal. I understand she has some some situations, circumstances that worked against that. But all she wants to do is be a faithful mom and a faithful wife. And look how God uses that incredible example. And how God blesses not only her and her family, but all of us today. If a God can use a woman in her brokenness to impact the history of faith, then why can't he do the same for you? And he can and he will. God's got an amazing plan for each and every one of us. If he can use Hannah, he can use you. And that doesn't diminish her as a person. It just, she is a human being, just like you and I. There's nothing, there was no royalty there. There was nothing special about her. She's simply like you and I, a worshiper of God. So if, she can, if God can use Hannah, then he can use us, any one of us, for his glory. If we'll do this, commit to his plans and purposes by faith. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening to this message. It was an honor to be able to spend this time with you in God's Word. If you have any questions or would like to find out more about Holt Assembly of God, please go to our website at www.holtag.org and connect with us there. Until our next broadcast of Life in the Spirit, I hope that you have a great day 
as you serve the Lord Jesus with a grateful heart.